to our series on Empowered. Oops, yeah, thank you. And what Empowered is about is, is how do we become ever better vessels for God to be able to move through, right? That's what we're doing. And we're looking at Luke and we're looking at Corinthians as an example of how to do it right and how to do it wrong. And we're putting this together about how to do this. Now, Everything in our church is doing this. This is not just a sermon series. We're putting our money where our mouth is. We're putting our feet where our heart is. And what we're doing is, is that we're going after this in fullness in every area. So you've got steering teams and people up here preaching and the testimony times that we do, or the, not the testimony times, but the discussion times that we do as a congregation and so on. And we're just doing everything we can to allow the Holy Spirit to move more, right? Now, one of the ways that God has been sort of just telling me that we're on the right track, as explained last week, is that he's blessing me with these times when I preach in a row. I'll preach two, maybe three sermons in a row, and then somebody from the congregation will usually preach. And theirs will fit very much in the flow of it. But these little sections that I get, two and three, they're, they're over and over, they're becoming these little mini-series. Like the one that we've been doing for the last two weeks, and this is the third week, the one that we've been doing the last two weeks is on love. And we've been looking at different aspects of love and going deeper. And that wasn't planned by me. I come to every Monday with no preconception about what God wants to say. I start by reading the scripture, the next one that's in Luke, just to see if something jumps out. And usually, well not usually, but always something does. And I go with it. And because I talked about this last week, I actually scooted forward a little bit. And I just looked at 8 to see whether or not there'd be something of love. And there's nothing of love in chapter 8. So I was like, well, I told you last week, it probably won't happen this week. So sure enough, I sit down on Monday, and I start reading Luke chapter 8. And the first little part is a little just busy work. It's kind of housekeeping that Luke is doing. And then he goes into this great story about parables and what they're about. And this is so cool. And I get really excited about it. So on Monday, I spent quite a bit of time working on parables, thinking that was the sermon. No love connection whatsoever. Just that's fine. You know, God wants us to do. That's what we're going to do, right? On Tuesday, I go out for my prayer and God pretty much stops me during my walk. I try and share this stuff, by the way, because I want you to see what it looks like to be in relationship with God on an ongoing basis. So that's why I do some of the behind-the-scenes stuff. So I go out on my walk, and I felt like God stopped me and said, I want you to read chapter 8 again. So I said, okay. And I start reading, and I'm just kind of reading that first little first three verses as if it's just a little bit of housekeeping. And all of a sudden, I just find myself... I hit a speed bump. A speed bump, for those of you who don't know, is you're reading the scripture and all of a sudden something stands out to you. And here's what you do with speed bumps, unless you want to ruin the car. You slow down. <laughs> you stop, even. You take a look around and you try and figure out why was there something to that. For devotionals, we do a thing called soap. The first thing is you read a passage of scripture. And you're looking for a speed bump. When you hit a speed bump, then you do the O part, which is observation. What, what is this? Why did this stand out to me? <laughs> And you mess with it and play with it and think about it and cogitate on it. And then you get to a place to where all of a sudden you get it and you get the revelation and oh my gosh. And then you do A, an application with it. And then you do the P and you pray about it, right? So I'm, this is essentially a soap. All of my sermons are essentially soaps. And so what I do is, is I'm sitting out there and I hit the speed bump. And at first I'm interested in it and then he shows me something. And then he shows me something else. And then I keep wrestling with it, and he shows me something else, and he shows me something else, and he shows me something else. Now watch. On Thursday, which is when I, nine times out of ten, when I'll write a sermon. On Thursday, I sat down to write the sermon, and I wasn't quite there, but I thought maybe I'd get there during the sermon. And I tried really hard to write the sermon. I mean, literally wrestled with it until three o'clock. Started at six in the morning, well, after the walk, seven. So, But I started at seven o'clock in the morning until three o'clock. I wrestled with the sermon, and I just couldn't get it. And I finally just quit. And I said, I'm not going to get it. I'm going to have to write it. Friday's a Sabbath for me, so I'm going to have to write it on Saturday. Sure enough, I get up on Saturday morning. I go to sit down Saturday, I walk, I do my prayer walk Monday through Friday, on Saturday I don't, I've talked about it before, whatever, it's how I do it in the Lord. But, but on Saturday I sit down, I got everything ready to go and I'm totally ready for the Lord to tell me how to go and, and he says, now go for your walk. And I was like, yeah, but it's Saturday, <laughs> you know, come on. <laughs> and he says, no, I'll go for the walk. So I said, okay, and you know, and I get up and I go for my walk and when I'm on my walk, all of a sudden he takes all these things that he's been doing in my heart and he just brings me to a moment to where I just go, oh, I literally, I wanted to play you the clip. 
Because what I do when I'm working on a sermon is I'll talk into a little Evernote note, you know, it's recording it, and I'll talk into it. I wanted to play the little recording clip because you'll hear me on the thing, and all of a sudden I just went, wow. I was just like, wow. I thought I knew a lot about the subject that we're going to be working on. And I just went, wow. Once again, I, it's about men and women and the relationship between each other. And it's not, it's not in the normal way like dating or marriage or something. It's about men and women and the way that God made them and what roles they play and so on. And I, th I think I'm fairly, I don't know, I want to say evolved, but that sounds so sort of new agey. Uh, you're going to hear it. I think I have a fairly developed sense of these roles and how to keep them in a place of humility and not sort of lording over and all that kind of stuff and everything else. And you'll hear a lot of people talk about this stuff and it becomes kind of controversial in the church about the roles of a husband and a wife and all this kind of stuff. And I have a very different take on that and I'll explain why in a second. And if you don't agree with me, I'd love to talk to you. But you know, I'm not trying to, trying to convince you differently. It's just what I feel like the Lord's revealed to me. But I've been teaching that for a long time. You've heard it many times here. But all of a sudden, he showed me yet again what he was really doing in that. And when he did that, I just, like I say, my, it was like my jaw dropped the ground and I went, the way you do things is so unbelievable. The way that he just continually flips things on their head and takes them to a deeper, richer, incredible place. That's where we're going today. So with that in mind, I need somebody to pray. Who's our prayer? Okay, who is it? Adam Carpenter? Well, that's awesome. He did Encounter last week. It went really well. Thank you, Adam. Love you. God bless you guys. Okay, uh, just, yeah, thank you for so many things over the years, Adam. Enjoy. So pray for the sermon. Lift up another church too, would you? God, we're just so thankful um, that you continually speak to us, God, and that you continually speak to Kurt. God, thank you that you took your time, God, because what you have for us is going to be amazing. And so, God, as Kurt speaks, I just pray that we have just open ears and open hearts and that we really digest, God, what you want to speak to us today. Amen. God, may we, may we grow as a congregation because Amen. of today. And God, I lift up Centerpoint and Marietta this morning. God, may Amen. they have an amazing service, God, a church that's just seeking after you, God, a, a worship pastor that's seeking after you, God. I pray that you just speak in all their services, God, this morning. Thank Amen. you, Lord. Amen. Jesus' name. Thank you, Adam, for that. Troy Smith is who he's referring to, of course, so my brother. All right, so here's the passage. This is housekeeping, right? This is how I first encountered it, right? Soon afterwards, Jesus has done this thing with John the Baptist, and then there's that woman who is the sinner who comes in and weeps and, you know, washes his feet with her tears and dries him with her hair and anoints her feet and kisses his feet, Right? Soon afterward, Jesus began a tour of the nearby towns and villages, preaching and announcing the good news about the kingdom of God. See, he's just kind of moving the story along. He took his 12 disciples with him, along with some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases, among them Mary Magdalene, from whom he cast out seven demons, Joanna, the wife of, I don't know, Chusa, Chusa, Herod's business manager, Susanna, and many others who were contributing from their own resources to support Jesus and his disciples. Now, I'm reading this on Tuesday morning. And I've read that, and I, like I said, I've already read it a couple of times and not gotten anything out. But as I'm reading it that morning, the part that stands out to me, the speed bump is many others who are contributing from their own resources to support Jesus and his disciples. Now, this sermon ultimately is about love, but we're going to be taking a wide detour before we come back to it at the end. But many others, it's not about finances, Jesus, so don't get, if you're afraid right now, don't run out, Okay. <laughs> There'll be some stuff about that, but it's never about that when we're about that here, right? It's always about something else that God's doing. God talks an awful lot about money in the Bible, more than any other single topic, by about twice. And the reason why is because he doesn't care about the money. He knows we do. He knows that this is a rubber-meet-the-road thing for us that we get tripped up on and hung up on. And it causes us to not quite capture something that he's trying to capture in our heart, and he wants the whole of us, Right? So many others who are contributing from their own resources to support Jesus' disciples. And I just, I don't know, I can't even tell you exactly what it was that made me trip on that, that made me sort of stop on that. But I just kind of had this thing of there's these people that are supporting Jesus. That's interesting. I usually don't think of him that way, right? If he wants money, he goes fishing and pulls the coin out of the mouth, right? Okay? So I just didn't think of him that way. 
But then I sort of started looking around, observation, right? I started looking around. What's, what's around this? And all of a sudden, this is the part that he showed me. Because does anybody notice anything particular about that little list of people there? What's, what stands out? They're all women. Now, he's talking about other women that were with him. But, but, and there may be others. There may be guys that are supporting him too. But here's the deal. Always remember, see, God wrote this book through Luke. God inspired him and, and moved him to do so. And so this is God highlighting something. Now, we're going to be talking about genders today. And here's what I always want you to remember about genders. Genders typically fall, most gender things have a certain amount of generalization about them to where they don't fit. I've told you before, I hate going to men's and women's retreats where they're going to talk about gender differences because I always end up the woman and Julie always ends up the man, <laughs> right? And I just don't feel like that's good for my manhood, you know, to always be the woman. It doesn't feel right, you know? So, I mean, you know, I, I made the point yes, last week, and I played football. I'm a man, you know, and I don't like coming out the woman, okay? So, but, but I want us to understand something. While there's always overlap in a lot of this stuff that we talk about like this, what we're going after today is the generalization. We're going after the average. We're going after that there's something at play that makes us, we know for sure that men and women are differently and how they function and so on, but how exactly is that? And there's some hints by the generalizations that we can draw. And this is a little bit more than a generalization, although just a little bit more, because I want you to think about something. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Susanna are the ones who are supporting Jesus. They're the ones who are giving of their own resources. This isn't a male-dominated time, by the way. This isn't a time when a woman's position, particularly with resources, is somewhat difficult because of the ability for stronger, more powerful men to come and take it. So this is a risky thing for them to be doing, too, in a certain sense. But here they are, out, one of them's married, of course, at least one of them. But the point is, is here they are out there giving. And when my heart went to that, all of a sudden, it just, as God would do, as he just starts to bring one thing upon another, right line upon line, all of a sudden, what I did was I went, you know, actually, the Bible, we've talked about this before, the Bible is an extraordinary book as concerns women. You do realize in all the world, every other religious text in the world never mentions women at all. They're not, their names aren't even in the books, except one, the Quran, who mentions one woman two times, and that's it. All the Eastern religions, everything else, and the one woman the Quran mentions two times is Mary, the mother of Jesus. And in all the other major religions of the world, you don't have any mention of women whatsoever. In the Bible, you've got a book named after a woman. You've got all kinds of women doing all kinds of things. Even to the point that by the time you get to the New Testament, you see this extraordinary thing happening, which is Paul. The most important letter Paul ever wrote was what? Romans, right? I mean, you could argue differently, but I think Romans is tough to argue with. And at the end of Romans, when Paul is pointing out to the most important work that he will ever do in his lifetime, which is to convert Rome, which then converts the world, right? When he gets arrested and he ends up there and so on. You need to, when he writes the letter there, look who he mentions. Look who he draws attention to. Look who the Holy Spirit is quickening him to draw attention to. Because at the end of Romans, I commend to you our sister, this is verse 1, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who's a deacon in the church of Centuria. Welcome her in the Lord as one who is worthy of honor amongst God's people. Help her in whatever she needs, for she's been helpful to many. Helpful, helpful, helpful women. That's a good, nice generalization. Women tend to be helpful. I get not all women are helpful, and men, you don't get to say anything right now. Okay? You know, but just in general, if you're generalizing, women tend to be very helpful. Okay? Helpful to many, and especially to me. Give my greetings to Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla's mentioned first, the woman. My co-workers in the ministry of Jesus Christ, obviously having an important place. I'm thankful to them, and so are all the Gentile churches. Give my greetings to Mary, who's worked so hard for your benefit. Greet Andronicus and Junia. Junia is a woman. My, my fellow Jews were in prison with me, and they're highly respected amongst the apostles. And there's a way of reading that in another section that it's possible Junia was even considered to be an apostle, which really would challenge a lot of current theology right now. Okay? But you've got to be open to the possibility that that's true. And, and it, just look at that. This is Romans. 
And I didn't take out of those ellipses don't have, aren't hiding a bunch of men's names. Okay? I just tried to fit it onto one screen. Do you see what he's doing? Woman, woman, woman. When he's talking about the church and who's building the church, who's he talking about? I'm not saying there's not men. He's got 12 disciples. Jesus does with him, and Paul's doing it, and he's got a whole bunch of guys with him. And, and the, so the guys are in too, but when he's talking about building of the church, we hear these women's names all the time, even to the point that we've got this person, Lydia, out of Acts. She's from Thyatira. She's the person whom God builds the church in Philippi on. See, what happens is she's a dealer in expensive textiles, probably a fairly wealthy woman, known to be a God-fearing woman. As she listened with intensity to what was being said, the master gave her a trusting heart, and she believed. And after she was baptized, along with everyone in her household, she said in a surge of hospitality, if you're confident that I'm, that I'm in this with you and believe in the master truly, come home with me and be my guest. We hesitated, but she wouldn't take no for an answer. And that, we know that that right there is how he built the church. As they met in her house, she was the one that financed it. We know all these various things from letters and other information that we, can, that we have, right? And we know that Lydia is the one that, he, that God built the church through in Philippi. Now, not every church was built by a woman, but a lot of them were to the point that at some point in time, we have to ask ourselves a question, where would the ancient church, where would the first church have been if it weren't for women? What would have happened? Honestly. Ponder that for a second. I mean, it's pretty clear that an awful lot of the foundation, an awful lot of the stuff that was going on wouldn't have happened. Or, I don't know, you know, how do you say that, right? How do you prove a negative? But it's pretty clear that God did use women extraordinarily and that there would have been a very different thing going on if it weren't for women. And that starts me to thinking, and I start thinking, why? What is it about women that makes them this way? I'm actually, you, know how, you know how everybody always tells you, what was the one joke? Oh, I'm sorry, I'm going to totally mess this up, but God, God comes to somebody and says, uh, what do you want? I'll give you a wish or something like that. And, the, and the, the guy says, I want a two-lane highway all the way to Hawaii. And God says, you've got to be kidding me. A two-lane highway to Hawaii? There's no possible. Do you know how hard that would be? That's ridiculous. And the guy says, okay, if I can't get that, then, then make me understand women. And God said, we like that. Two lanes or four? <laughs> right? Well, I'm going to help you understand women today. I'm not only going to help you understand women, I'm going to help you understand what God is doing through them for you men. In an incredible way that I, I'm, I'm pretty certain you've never heard before. I never had, but that doesn't mean anything, right? But I just think about it. So here we go. We get to this place to where we start saying, remember last week we were looking at a woman who, she's a prostitute, probably, she knows going to a religious house is going to bring on her all kinds of judgment, but she braves that anyway to get to Christ. And when she gets to Christ, she falls down behind him and grabs his feet and weeps and pours out and does all the things that she does. And, and we look at that scene and it's incredibly tender, but then I had to act it out. By the way, I thought the motorcycle guys were going to be here today, and I was saying to God before that sermon, you've got to be kidding me. You're going to have me kissing somebody's feet when the motorcycle people are here? That doesn't seem fair, God, okay? So I just want you to know. But, but the point is, is we all got a good laugh out of it. But, you know, we made it clear that women don't like kissing guys' feet any more than men do. So why does it seem like a woman would do that and a guy wouldn't? You see the, what the real question is? Why would a woman be willing to grab a hold of? And what we learned out of that sermon was, is God's asking us all to do this. He's asking us to learn how to become people who are incredibly and ultimately utterly dependent upon him. This thing that we have as men where we rise up and we want to say, you know, we want the well done good and faithful servant, meaning that we have risen from child and milk to the meat of doing things on our own, and now we want God to say, you're doing really well. That's what we want as men, but that's not what well done good and faithful servant means at all. Well done good and faithful servant means understanding that in me you can do anything, everything, glorious things. But in yourself, it'll always come to something different, not right? And so the point is, is that what we learned was is this a need for this incredible dependence 
and this kind of a thing. So we, we get that, and we get it from a feminine archetype. If you know the word, it means a stereotype or a, this generality, right? This, this idea, this meme that's out there, okay? So we get that kind of a thought from that. We also get throughout Scripture and even throughout our lives. Remember I already said women, helpful, all this kind of stuff. In Joppa, there's a disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. She's always doing good works and acts of charity. She was always doing good works and acts of charity. Now, she dies, and Peter comes and raises her again from the dead. Pretty big deal. But the thing that we're looking at is always doing good works and acts of charity. And again, understanding that there's some men that are more generous and do more than women do, and women can be selfish too, and so on. But understanding that in terms of generalities, if, if you're going to say somebody is always doing goodwill and acts of charity, you think Mother Teresa, not Mr. So-and-so. Just as a, you know, I mean, I'm not saying, you know, Francis is turning out to be quite a pope in terms of his willingness to do these kinds of things, so you get it? But there's still this thing about this feminine thing. So what is that thing? That's what we're going to be looking at here now for a few more minutes. And in order to get there, the first play, thing that I want to do is I want to play from you a clip that many of you have seen before. We actually did the marriage seminar here before. It's called Laugh Your Way to a Better Marriage, a guy named Mark Gunger. And he talks in a very funny way about the difference between men and women's brains. And I want you to understand, this stuff is right from scientific literature. He's having fun with it. But this is what the newest research is telling us as we learn more and more about the brain. So I want you to just watch this. We're going to start discussing men's brains, women's brains, and how they're very different from each other. Now, I want to start with men's brains. All right? Now, men's brains are, are very unique. Men's brains are made up of little boxes. And we have a box for everything. We've got a box for the car. We've got a box for the money. We've got a box for the job. We've got a box for you. We've got a box for the kids. We've got a box for your mother somewhere in the basement. We've got... <laughs> we got we, we got boxes everywhere. And, and the rule is, the boxes don't touch. <laughs> when a man discusses a particular subject, we go to that particular box, we pull that box out, we open the box, we discuss only what is in that box. All right? And, and, and then we close the box and put it away being very, very careful not to touch any other boxes. very different from man's brains. Women's brains are made up of a big ball of wire. And everything is connected to everything. The money's connected to the car, and the car's connected to your job, and your kids are connected to your mother, and everything's connected to everything. It was like... It's like the internet superhighway, okay? And, and it's all driven by energy that we call emotion. It's, just, it's, it's, it's one of the reasons why women tend to remember everything. Because if you take an event and you connect it to an emotion, it burns in your memory and you can remember it forever. The same thing happens for men. It just doesn't happen very often because, quite frankly, we don't care. <laughs> uh, women tend to care about everything. And she just loves it. <laughs> okay. 
Now, some of you who know what comes after that clip is the nothing box. And I really wanted to put it in there, but it, it's not important to our point. But it talks about how men have a box in which is nothing. And it's very funny, okay? But I just, I want you to get a hold of something. I want you to see, this is not a woman's or a man's brain, but I just want you to, I want to illustrate this, this visually. This is an actual photo, National Geographic just released. This is research that's being done where we're now able to see in the brain and when, we, when they do certain things, we're able to actually map what neurons are firing and we can color code it and do all the things that we can do. And this is an actual brain and this is that that he's talking about. Now, I wanna make it clear that even though men do in fact have a nothing box, their brains do in fact have this electrical impulse going on. So women, when you think that maybe he's not wired at all, <laughs> he is, okay? And I, I just want you to trust that that could actually be a male brain. The women brain would probably be all nothing but color, but bottom line, okay, you can see all the different wires going all the different ways. Now, what I want us to do is I want us to talk for a second about this idea of compartmentalization. Another book that's come out that many of you are familiar with is, is that men are waffles, which is to say compartments that hold a little butter and a little bit of syrup, and they don't, right? They're a single compartment, and women are what? Spaghetti, right? They're all connected and everything else. That's coming from the same kind of research and just trying to understand this dynamic between the two. It actually is, like I say, in the womb, when the boy is growing up and testosterone starts getting released, it actually severs connections that are being grown between the right and the left brain. Not all of them, of course but it severs a ton of them, and it's one of the reasons why guys are just not as connected in their thinking. It doesn't connect to everywhere else because there's literally severing of a lot of connections that would have otherwise been there. You see that? So I want us to think about that for a second. What's better? Is it better to be, you know, everything connected to everything else, or is it better to be compartmentalized? The answer is yes. Okay, they both have their strengths. In order to make this clear, I want to show you a picture of a guy, and he's almost adorable at this point in his life. This is Bill Gates, of course, and Paul Allen. And look at him. I, is he, yeah, I think he's still a teenager. I don't think he has, he can't drink even at this point, right? And he's already started Microsoft. Uh, but look at Bill Gates. Now, right there, he's got a pleasant smile on, and he really is a very pleasant person from what people say. But if you're talking to him in a business context, many people in this room have done that, you know that one of the things about him is, is that he's incredibly laser-like focused. Now think about this. What's going on here to an extent is, is that what a guy can do is, is that he can take a box, right? And he can open it up and he can start working on this box as if it's not connected to anything else. And frankly, that's a kind of a helpful thing to have happen because you can really drill deep when you're not connected to everything else. When you can just concentrate on this one thing, and there's plenty of women that can go deep and concentrate, plenty of guys that are flaky, right? But the bottom line is, is what we're talking about in general is the way their brains work. You, you drill in and you get... You, and you do this, and the thing is, is I want to I show you, this is somebody who lives in our community, and this guy has changed the world. He's forever changed the course of history by this laser-like focus in this one area, this ability to really just drill and drill and drill and drill to incredible places that suddenly open up a whole other universe. That's an amazing thing. But, you know, Bill is a guy, and guys like girls for the most part. So, you know, Bill runs in one day to this pretty woman, Melinda, and she's very smart too, and he falls in love, and he marries her. Now, Melinda's very, very smart, but her brain is like this. Where Bill is thinking for the first years after they were married even. He got, they got married fairly late. He's still totally focused on Microsoft and making Microsoft be Microsoft and drilling down in deep and so on. What's she doing? To her great credit, and she deserves enormous credit for this, she did not become the rich wife who was throwing parties and going to the spa every other day as if that was somehow incredibly necessary. She became a person, and I always was, a person who cared about what was happening in the world and the needy. And she had this incredible resource now, and she goes out and she starts working this thing. And for a while, the Gates Foundation forms, and Bill's not really involved in it. 
She is. It's her endeavor, and he's doing Microsoft. He's drilling down, changing the world, doing this focus thing. She's doing this thing that is also affecting the whole of the world, but it's this whole global thing, pun intended. Do you see it? Now, I want to show you this. Now watch, see? Bill, at the very beginning of the company, comes up with a statement, Microsoft's original mission statement. I think it's in the cement in the campus in Redmond. A computer on every desk and in every home running Microsoft software. That turns out to be one of the best mission statements. That's a studied mission statement because it's so simple, elegant, easy. It's not complex. There's no jargon in there. There's nothing. It's a really simple concept that drove that company to actually succeed at doing that. Pretty much. Right? Now, I read a New York Times article and I tried very hard to find the actual quote from Bill on this, but I'm very close to it. Bill is sitting here at Microsoft, drilling down, drilling down, drilling down. Melinda is going off and making all this difference in the world. Melinda says, come, on, come with me on a trip to an incredibly impoverished area. And I think it was in India. It might have been in Africa, but I think it was India. And Bill all of a sudden finds himself, well, there's no electricity. <laughs> Forget about computers. But more importantly, there's no food. And he said this, and I think this is to his credit, and also it's a very guy thing to say. He said, seeing these people that couldn't even eat, I suddenly realized that a computer was not their most immediate need. That a computer was not the answer to their problem. They needed food. They needed to not be sick. Now you see, here's a guy who's drilling down Here's a woman who's doing this. Here's a couple who's starting to be able to do this. You see it? When they start functioning together. And now, of course, he's stepped out of Microsoft for the most part at this point in time, right? And he's doing the foundation, and he's, making, he's taking that drill-like focus into these kinds of areas. But here's what I want to show you. What would Bill be like, and what would the Gates Foundation be if there wasn't a Melinda? See how we keep coming back to this question? What would the world be like if there weren't this happening? What would he have done? See it? Would he have ever found it? This thing that is literally being more important than most governments in the world in terms of making a difference in the world, the amount of resources that they're pouring in, the amount of intelligence that they're pouring in to the problems, not bounded by all the politics of governmental things. The ability that they're able to do. There's people in this building that work at that foundation and it's an unbelievable what they're doing in the world. It's incredible. So I want us to understand that there is this compartmentalization that guys can do, which your strength is always your weakness. That's what the Bible teaches us. And if we were doing a sermon on men, and we would, I would go into a whole thing about where the weakness is here, but that's not really what we're looking at today. So I want to stay over on this side more about the strength is the weakness. And what's the weakness over here? Your ideas can get disconnected from the bigger picture. See what I mean? And your compartmentalization, guys. Anybody, any guy in here can get a little obsessive about something and drill down in there and suddenly wake up after, you know, three or four o'clock in the morning or worse and kind of go, why did I do that? And what did I do to my wife? And where are my kids again? And anybody, any guy in here willing to step up on that one? <laughs> You see it? There's this thing about being able to be compartmentalized and drilled down to the point that you lose perspective. And by the way, I'm not just talking, I want you to see that this is actually biblical. God, Jesus comes to a group of men who have got religion figured out. They're called Pharisees. And these are people that are serious about it. These are not people that are casual about religion and God. These are people that are incredibly serious about getting it right. And so they drill down in the way a guy will do and they stack the boxes and they rank it and they prioritize it and they do all the things that a guy will do to it and they end up coming up with this is what religion is. And Jesus, who is God, which is what religion is supposed to be about, comes to these people and says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Now listen, you pay a tenth. You see this? They're getting all the details right. They're drilling down. You pay a tenth of mint and dill and cumin. 
But you've totally disconnected from the more important matters of the law. You've disconnected your thought of this thing from whatever else it's supposed to be connected to. And so you come up with the wrong conclusion. Do you see this? You've neglected the more important matters of the law. Justice, mercy, faith. These things should have been done without neglecting the others. You're supposed to do this thing. But you're supposed to do this thing connected to everything else. See it? Blind guides. You strain out a gnat and you gulp down a camel. This is in the middle of a section where God, Jesus does this over and over to them. Look at all these times, and I just, I took the examples out just to show you. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites. Woe to you. There's another story. Woe to you. There's another story. Woe to you, blind guides, blind fools, blind people. Woe to you, blind guides. Woe to you, blind Pharisee. Woe to you, woe to you. Every one of those woe to yous is another example of just what I'm talking about. The way that a guy can get to something that makes perfect sense to him, and yet it turns out to be completely disconnected from what's true, real, full, rich, and, tr and better. That's a problem. <laughs> We're guys and we need help. Okay. Take this idea. You are... You're a, you're a guy, you're a woman, right? And there's a person that has a need. You're, 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 let's say you're walking up the street and you happen to be, I say, the braver in a really nice place. And there's this poor woman with, in tattered clothes with a, with a little girl. And the woman is trying to unpack a little plastic thing in order to feed a girl who's obviously not getting enough food. Now you're a guy and you're, right, and then there's a girl, Right? Now watch what this is teaching us in a practical way. When you walk, when the guy walks up to there, is he moved? Absolutely he's moved. This is a really important concept now. I'm going I'm to go back a little bit and pick up something here. He's moved because of mirror neurons. So are women. What's a mirror neuron? Real simple. The way that it was discovered is, explains it perfectly. What they do is they take a primate. I can't remember if it was a chimpanzee or a gorilla. It was something close to us in the way their brain works. I think it's probably a chimp. But anyway, the point is they take a chimpanzee and what they do is, is that they're mapping like that brain image that I showed you with all the little neurons going. And what they do is, is that they map what happens when a gorilla reaches out to grab a banana and eat it. What neurons fire? What parts of the brain are being used to do that simple little thing, right? And so they have the chimp wired and now it's lunchtime and they've mapped what neurons it takes for the gorilla, to, for the chimp to reach out and grab the banana. And the researcher who's having lunch wants a banana. So he goes to reach out for a, a banana and he sees the screen that is wired to the chimp light up exactly as if it was the chimp that was reaching out to grab the banana. The chimp is watching the researcher grab the banana and has the exact same neurons fire as if the chimp itself was reaching out and grabbing the banana. Do you see that? Now that's an incredible gift that God has given us because it makes us have compassion on one another. It makes us have empathy for one another. Literally that splonkinitsomai that we talk about all the time. This thing where you see someone in need and something goes off inside of you and you go, ah, see? It does it in you too and you want to do something about it. So the man now is walking out in front of the bravern and he sees the situation and he sees the thing and it goes off inside of him. But now what's going to happen in his brain? Maybe he's going to get some money out of his pocket. Maybe he's going to do something. But do remember, he's disconnected in many ways. So the chances are that he'll end up doing nothing. He'll figure something else out or whatever, but it won't make it to action. Now, take a woman in the same situation. What's, gonna, what's she going to do? Just by what we're looking at right now, not by your own experience, just by what we're looking at. It fits experience. But what the woman's going to do is when her mirror neurons fire, what's going to happen inside of her brain? It's going to fire everything else. <laughs> what can I do? How can I help? You see what I mean? And she's much more likely, therefore, to end up actually giving. Now, I know I've already got some skeptical glances on this. I'm going to do this biblically in just two seconds. So hang in there with me. But I want, to, I want you to see something. I'm not saying that some men can't be more generous than women. There's plenty of this overlap as we've been talking about. But what I want to say is the woman with the way that her brain is capturing all of this is more likely to do it. And that's why the Bible is mentioning her more because she's actually doing it more.
She's actually more moved. In fact, let's take it from a need to a spiritual event. Why does it seem like women have more spiritual events than men? Or at least, why does it seem like that they act on them more? Because you see, we have this example of Lydia. As she listened with intensity to what was being said, the master gave her a trusting heart and she believed. And that led to what? Action. It didn't get compartmentalized into this is my religious box and I've had an experience and I'm now putting my religious experience into my box and then I'm putting it back in here but I'm being careful not to let it touch other things because this is my religious box. What Lydia is doing is exactly what we're talking about. He gives her a trusting heart she believes and then in a surge of hospitality if you're confident, da-da-da, we hesitated, but she wouldn't take no for an answer. Do you see what's happened in her? This thing that has happened to her has fired everything in her, and it has become something that she's now doing for somebody else. Now, if you're not convinced, I still got a ways to go, okay? So hang in there with me, but here's what we haven't done yet. Here's what we have done, and here's what we haven't done. What we've done is we've just explained why women are more likely to move, why women are more likely to do things. But there's a whole other side of it that it has to do with the man mostly that we want to look at too. And this is going to pull us back to Genesis. Now remember, when I'm talking about Genesis and men and women, this may be, if, if you're new here, this will be new to you, I think. If you're not new here, you've heard it before. I'll do it in just a couple of minutes, so it's real quick. But in Genesis, we see something incredibly important about men and women that we have to remember, I think, all the time. And that's this. Number one. God says, you can eat of every tree in the garden, but don't eat of that tree, because when you do, you'll die. Why is Eve hanging around the tree and Adam not? Using our, see what happened was, God said, don't eat of that tree. Okay, I put that information in that box and I tuck it away and I'm not spending any time around the tree. Why? Because I don't care. He told me not to. It's not connected to anything else. I'm okay. Why is she hanging around the tree? Do you see it? She's hanging around the tree because he told me not to eat it. What's wrong with it? That must mean something. That's connected to me on this thing. And that so my feet find myself over there, and I'm suddenly talking to the snake. Why? Well, what about this food? And when she says something, that triggers more things in me. And what about this? And what about that? And pretty soon, all of a sudden, she eats. And then when she eats, what she do next? She leads. Here, you eat too. What should he have done? No way. But what did he do? Okay. It wasn't connected to anything else. It wasn't connected the way that it needed to be connected. And so he went, okay. And he ate it. Now when she did that, uh, this is the important principle here for us to understand about men and women. And this clears up so much in my mind, of the bad theology that's out there right now about what they call complementarian, if you know what that means, about women and men and roles in church and so on. If you understand this, this will clear this up. Here's what's happening. The woman as a nurturer, somebody who's firing in all these ways, who's, who's, taking, who's keeping everything in this global environment of importance and so on, and that has to do with people, that has to do with things and so on. And she's got all of this global things and she's doing this. And the man who's over here doing something quite different than that, she's nurturing. If you pick up a modern management book, one we're within the last 10 years, it's incredibly feminine in orientation about how to lead. Why? Because it turns out that people do better when they're nurtured rather than when they're led, rather than when they're imposed upon or dictated upon. Now, men are pretty good followers, so they do okay with dictation, with being dictated to, right? Which is why they can form armies and do things. But women do a different thing. And what we're finding now, particularly with women in the workplace, we're finding somebody standing up there telling you what to do isn't exactly right. You've got to explain it to them. You've got to make sure that they understand the bigger picture. You've got to make sure that they... And then once they get behind it, they can get behind it. And it turns out that men actually do better in that environment too. Because now they have the spirit of it, and now they're more invested in it, and now they're drilling down in it more because now they care about it more because they understand the fullness of it. See what's happening in the world? God is moving us. 
So what happens in the garden is the woman's leader, natural leadership abilities in terms of nurturing, here's what God says, you led, so here's what I'm going to do. I made you totally equal, Canigdo. I made you totally equal with him. And in the end, no more male nor female, totally equal again. But for a time, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the woman and I'm going to put your desire to be under him. Remember, that's exactly how he says it. God said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains and you'll bear children in anguish. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. In other words, your desire, listen to how it says it. Your desire is going to be to be under somebody else. So that you'll do what? Learn how to follow. Now to the man who followed, what's he tell them to do? I'm going to take you and place you over to do what? Domineer? No, to learn how to nurture. To learn how to take care. And in fact, the way that he says it is, he says to the man, to the man he says, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose food I commanded you not to eat. Now just before I go into that, I just want you to get that principle. For a temporary time, meaning this time that we're alive, Women have, been, have a desire to be under and to see him excel, and it's about something very different than themselves excelling, ultimately. Men are being placed over to lead and to nurture and to take care. But now watch how hard it is going to be for the man to have to take care. Because what he says is, because you followed her, the ground is cursed. All your life you're going to struggle to scratch a living from it. It'll grow thorns and thistles for you. Though you will eat of its grains by the sweat of your brow, you will have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you're made. See that? Now think about this. We're talking about why is it that women were the ones who were supporting and getting the bigness of this and moving forward in this. And we're starting to identify that there's a problem that the guys have besides just being compartmentalized. Here's what a man thinks. I need to... It's hard out there. I've run my fingernails down to the bone. I've scratched from the ground. And there was thorns and thistles competing with me. And I scratched from the ground in order to get a resource to be able to provide not just for me, but for this woman that I love and for the things that sprout out of her. Do you see it? I'm scratching from the ground in order to provide for my family. This is a hard thing. This is hard won. If you came by money cheaply, you let it go cheaply. If you came by money through scratching it out of the ground, you feel a little differently about it. Now, again, there's plenty of men that are incredibly generous, but you see that right there, men have this attitude that runs more towards, I need to accumulate, I need to get. What are men trusting in ultimately? Key question here. What are men trusting in? They should be trusting in God, but they're trusting in their own abilities. They're trusting in my ability to scratch the ground a little better than the next guy and at least, at the very least, to get enough for myself and my family. That's what they're trusting in. What are women trusting in? There's plenty of women out there that, that you know, money makes them feel secure, but that's a perverted thing. What, in, if you really look at what is a woman, where does a woman feel most safe? Is it by having a lot of money? No. It's by being in a community. If I'm in a community of people that I know and that I love and that I trust and that I respect and they, I know that they love me and they trust me and they respect me, when I'm in this community, I'm safe. And our community can actually be quite poor and I can feel quite safe and provided for. Do you see it? What I'm trusting in is I'm trusting in other people. Do you remember what he did? He took her and he put her under somebody else to where she had to trust from somebody else. See that? So where she feels safe is in community. Where he feels safe is in acquisition. Now, he will say this in this, Mark Gunger will say this, so this is a really short little clip, but I just want you to see him talking about this exact principle, okay? Men's brains, women's brains. Women's brains think give, 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 give. They just love to give. They're happiest when they're giving. You get a bunch of women together and they're all giving to each other. Oh, I love your hair. I love your shoes. I love your outfit. They just love it. Now, men's brains are a little different. Men's brains think, take, 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 take,
and you get a bunch of men together and we insult each other. <laughs> we do. You're fat. You're ugly. You smell. Thanks, man. You know, I mean, that's... You see it? See, women are giving. Why? Because giving is how you be in community. Giving is how you become part of a community. Everybody gives. Let me show you biblically where this played out. This is an extraordinary moment in the history of the church. This is the moment that people who didn't know the Lord looked upon the people who did, and they said, whatever it is that's going on inside of you is amazing and incredible, and it's so different from how I'm processing life that I don't want to join you. I'm afraid to join you. Because if it meant I have to do that, I just don't think I could do it. What's that moment? It, literally, what it says is, the people greatly respected them, but feared to join them. And what's it referring to? There's some miracle in there too, but it's referring to this moment. All the believers were united in one heart and mind, and they felt that they, what they owned was not their own. So they shared everything they had, and the apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was on them all. There were no needy people among them. Because those who own land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. Now, taking everything that we've talked about, I'm going to ask you the same basic question again. Would that have happened if there weren't women in that community? For the women, God has done this incredible thing. It's transforming the whole of my life. How can I give the whole of my life to him? There's somebody in need? Of course I want to provide for them. Sell what we've got. We're in community. The community, God will take care of us. You see it? If it would have been just men, would we have done that? I like to think that we would have done that, but honest to goodness, I think we would have figured out a way not to. I did that in my life. God came to me and said, sell a huge asset. And I said, you know, within, it took me about two days to figure out why God couldn't possibly have said that and what he actually meant by it. And I was completely wrong. And a few years later, he took everything. And God bless him for it. Right? But the bottom line was, is we'll box it up. I'll take mine to go, please. See? I can disconnect it from everything else. A woman doesn't disconnect it from everything else. And now all of a sudden we're starting to get to this thing that started to drop my jaw. And is Julie here? Are you working your way forward, hon? Thank you. I, I want to, don't come up just yet, okay? <laughs> this is the way the message interprets this Genesis 3.16. You'll want to please your husband, but he'll lord it over you. Now, I think you'll want to please your husband is a mistranslation. You can look at the Hebrew, and it doesn't say you want to please your, it does say you want to please your husband, but what it's really saying is you'll get your satisfaction, you'll get your peace from him doing well. That's what it actually means. You're coming under him, and when he does well, you will feel well. Any women in here can attest to that? When the man's doing well? Any men can attest to if you're not doing that, how, you know, the dynamic works both ways, right? It's tough. But the bottom line is, you'll want to please her, but listen to this, but he'll lord it over you. Now, what do, we, what do we see in the world when we look at women and men? I'm not talking about Western culture, which has quote-unquote evolved. And we have, quite a bit, into a much more of a godly place, even though I think we've got more to go, which is one of the things I'm trying to do today. But when we look at the women the world over, what are they considered to be in most, you know, the, what it would be, three-fifths of the world probably. What are women considered to be? Property. To the point that in some places, if she burns your mill, you can burn her alive. That is the most unbelievable, despicable, horrible but we've got them being covered up and we've got them being this and we've got, them, we've got all of these things that are happening to them which are not treating them as God's child, which are not exalting them, which are not bringing them up. And, and here's the problem, guys. And women too, because you can help us with this a lot. And once I unearth this, I hope it's going to help us really function together better. But here's the point. I know that some of you aren't married and I want to say, take everything I'm about to say and apply it to God because this is what he wants to be in your life. He wants to be that other half. And he tells you that you have it better because you're not distracted by the fallenness of this other person. 
that all those of us who are married are having to do it with. Can anybody say amen to that? Okay. But I want us to understand that in every situation, God is doing something relationally, and what he's doing is something like this. Go ahead and come up, sweetie. See, if I lord over her, what will, she, what will I get out of it and what will she get out of it? If I lord over her, which some people think that I do, but you can tell them right now and be serious, I don't do that. Okay? If I lord over her, what will I get? What I've got. And no more. Right? But what happens if I start taking on this, what I've called more evolved Christian understanding of, what happens if I start to nurture her so that she starts to be able to be raised up into everything that God wants her to be and she's contributing to our relationship like that? What happens when I do that? Now what am I getting? Yeah, well, yeah, I'm getting a lot more benefit, right? I'm getting the benefit of two very different people that are able to come together and make better decisions and so on. But you know what? That's only, see, this is the part where all of a sudden I started seeing what God was doing. Think about it. See, when it says Lord over, what we still think is men, we still think this. It's still down deep in there somewhere. There's something about us that's just the stronger vessel. I don't just mean physically. There's something about us that we're the man. And it's sort of just beat into us. But what happens if we take it the other way? What happens if we say, I am the man, and that means that I'm screwed up? What happens if I start saying to myself, that means that God has brought me somebody to help me, and what I'm actually supposed to be doing with her is not just nurturing her, but I'm actually supposed to be learning from her because of ways in which I have been deficient. See it? Watch this. Here's number one. Have you, has anybody in here ever met anybody who's more oriented to just serving other people than Julie? Right? Now, everybody in here knows that because of that, she's a better human being than I am. Me too. Me too. I don't argue the fact at all. Okay? If anybody wants to say that, I'm like, you bet. Absolutely. Are you kidding? I would never do what she does. I wouldn't want to. Okay? I don't. I'm a guy. Okay? I got my agenda. I got the stuff I want to work on. But you know what I do know inside of my heart? God, I wish I was more like her and that I was just totally oriented to serving other people. I wish I was like that. Interesting factoid for those who have been around for a long time. Have you seen me start to become a little bit more that way? Here's what I'm talking about, dependent. When I got, I always thought I depended on other people. I never depended on anybody. But do you see how we're reorging the church and what we're doing with steering teams and other preachers and other... Do you see how I'm becoming more and more dependent upon people for God's will to be done? I, don't, I think that I cannot bring God's will in fullness anymore. I'm absolutely convinced of it. I'm convinced that if I don't have you, we got no chance of getting to the fullness of God. And I want to tell you that a lot of that has to do with God working in me, but a lot of that had to do with that God gave me a superb example of how to live life, of how to be. And it feels like it's becoming more and more real to me. It actually is becoming something I want to do. As I'm being released from business stuff in the church, I find myself wanting to minister in ways that frankly I've been too tired, too worn out, too burned out, and I just didn't have the predilection to do it anyway. And now I'm finding myself wanting to do that. And I'm finding God putting me in all these situations. Just the other day, Julie and I sitting in a room with a couple. And it was an unbelievable experience, the way that God was moving. And I just walked out of there going, I don't really care if I don't do anything but that for the rest of my life. Because that was better than all the other stuff that I do. And want to do. Wanted to do. See this? I'm not just nurturing her in terms of, I'm the guy and I know and I know how to make you better. I'm starting to understand that God put her under me, put her in a, a subjected position. She's subjected to me. Literally, some of you have felt that about her before. And I'm starting to understand that he did that because in doing that, if I will bend my knee and I will humble myself and I will see the gift that he has brought me in it and I will not lord over but I will learn from It'll transform my life. 
in amazing ways. In the same vein, I want you to think about something. This is the part that really made my jaw drop. When God made Eve, what did he call her? A helpmeet, right? Now, I, Julie can tell you for sure about this. Every major decision we've ever made, I have really pressed her to be part of the decision. That was not her natural bent. She did not want to do that. When she was younger, she was brought up in a place where the women did what the men said and they supported them and that's what they did. And that was her whole orientation about how a good woman was and that was her vision of what it was and so on. And I tried to do this. And now she's at a place to where actually when we make a decision, she's very, very, very much communicating what she thinks about it and what she believes and so on. But here's what I learned on my walk on Saturday morning. I learned that because her brain is different than mine, He's showing me what love looks like. He's showing me that as much as I say I love you to everybody, and I mean it because I do, but he's showing me that it's still not the fullness that she's got. Not just because she serves everybody, but because it's connected to everything. The way that she loves keeps everything in balance. The way that she loves, I can love and drill down and miss the bigger because I'm disconnecting. And I, I want to tell you as a man, as a husband, what I'm now planning on doing is as we talk, I'm going to be looking for the ways in which she's connecting to things that I didn't think to connect to. That Melinda needed to take Bill to a place. And I'm telling you the part that really is getting to me. For the first time, I think I'm starting to see love, at least a new kind of love, a much better kind than I've ever known. One that is truly connected throughout in that I'm dependent. See it? I'm learning how to love through Christ. Not my way, but his way. Because he's shown me what it looks like because she's living love. I love you. I've got some more slides and I could go into them, but I'm not going to because we're done. I want to make a point, though. I want to I try and drill to something here right now. What this is all about is living with the whole of your life. The thing that I wanted to show you was this little internet article that went around about why I quit tithing and you should too. And, and you know, you would think that on the surface that would be this argument that tithing isn't for the New Testament and his answer was, the issue with tithing is, is I, used to, I used to send God a check for $112.31 because that was 10% of my income. And he said I started realizing that that was stupidity, that what God had was, and what God wanted from me was everything. He wanted the whole of me in this area of finances, but in the whole of my life. He wants the whole of me. It's, you know, uh, Jerry Cook at his funeral, somebody stood up and said one of his famous sayings that I'd never heard before. God does not want you to have a devotional life. God wants you to have a life of devotion. Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, this congregation comes before you, and we're asking you to begin to show us, men and women, what a life of devotion is. We're asking you to begin to show us more deeply and more completely and more utterly what live, living love is. The one that is connected where everything is in fact connected and that we as men, are, we can't make our brains different, but we can rely on. We can come to other people, this, these women that you have placed in our life. We can't come to them and, and we can start to understand that there's a bigger picture there and we can go to you directly who is connected to everything and is connected in ways that we did not see I did not see the sermon that you had in those first three verses but as I let you lead me you showed me and I'm asking you in Jesus holy and precious name show us how to love holy pun intended W-H-O, show us how to live in fullness, love in fullness, but show us how to love in the way that is actually completely and utterly yours, which is to say H-O-L-Y, holy. In 
Jesus' holy and precious name, God, show us how to do this. Make us those instruments of yours that are not just in the moment, but that are in every moment, in everything, connected all the way around. Thank you for the gift that you have given me and Julie. Thank you for the gift that you have given all mankind in women. Thank you, God, for how you're showing all of us if we will just but bend our knee and humble ourselves and learn from. Thank you. So in Jesus' holy and precious name, we come before your throne right now. We reach down in front of us and we grab this cup. And there's two cups, in fact, so make sure you get both of them. And the lower cup has the, the bread in it, which is the body, which is the life, the life that I have led for all these years. And in Jesus' holy and precious name, <laughs> I put my finger in there and I say, man, have I made a mess of it. I've broken it all to pieces. But in Jesus' holy and precious name, God, Jesus, you went to the cross and you made me whole again. You bore my iniquities. You took my brokenness and you healed it by your stripes. And so in Jesus' name, I take this now to be utterly dependent upon you, Jesus. Upon you, Holy Spirit, upon you, Heavenly Father, I take this to become whole in all things again in you. Take this body together, would you? And now I lift this cup in which is this life that you have already purchased for me at the cross. It's already been done. Nothing else needs to be done. All that needs to happen is me to enter in. So in Jesus' holy and precious name, we take this cup together saying, God, by your strong right arm, would you please make that life ours? Make that life ours. Lift up this cup in Jesus' name. <laughs>